Thank you, Chuck, and thank you, Acapella. It's uh, really such a wonderful experience to be in worship with you and to be led by you. And thank you, David Dockery, my really dear friend, for the privilege and opportunity to to speak today and to be part of the IACE conference, but also part of this uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary chapel service. I have a great uh, love. I, I wish I had more time to share some anecdotes uh, about my experience. Only three years at Southwestern, but I really love this institution. Uh, one of the happiest days of my life was when I got the call from Huber Drumright uh, to uh, invite me to teach at Southwestern. It was, it was the fulfillment of a great uh, hope and prayer and expectation. I loved where I was. I was pastoring a church in uh, West Texas, uh, First Baptist Church of Roscoe, Texas, and loved the people. But I had told them even when the search committee talked to me that I wanted to teach. And this opportunity to teach here was an incredible experience. I was, I was here... Uh, with some colleagues, uh, some heroes of, of the faith and of American uh, Baptist life. Uh, James Leo Garrett was here. Curtis Vaughn was here. Lacoste Munn, Boyd Hunt, Burt Dominey, Bruce Corley, David Garland, Jim Brooks, Harry Hunt, Roy Fish, others, uh, Tom Murray, Dan Kent. It was, it was a wonderful experience. And again, many, many others who influenced me. I, David mentioned uh, biblical theology, and that's what I first began to teach. I learned so much biblical theology by being here, and Huber Drumright took me to my first class. It was in summer school, and there in the audience was this uh, young student, uh, David Dockery. And I, I realized as the, as the summer session went on that David could just as well have been in my spot teaching the class. He had already at that age, more bibliography stuffed in his head. I still call upon him and ask him for help. I did last night with uh, books and, and references. And uh, I, I learned that David, uh, well, I f forgive him for loving Alabama football, but uh, he loved baseball. And we went to a Rangers game together and, uh, and thus began a, a lifelong friendship. But I want to say just quickly to Southwestern uh, particularly faculty and staff, but also the students. Uh, you are blessed. I know you know you're blessed to have David uh, as the leader. Uh, but you, you, are, you are involved. It may not feel like it at times, and you may not know it at times, but you are involved in, the, in, the, in a renaissance, a renewal of Southwestern Seminary and the influence of this great school. I know there are some have been and, and will be always. It's life, some, some tough days. But you are, part, you are part of the next generation of heroes. Someone 20, 30 years from now is going to stand up and say, I got to be here in those days. And uh, you have much to be thankful for. I, I want to share with you, I was assigned the topic and gladly uh, took it, what is evangelism? And it, it really relates powerfully to the, the question of biblical theology that was first, uh, that I first began to encounter and, and discover uh, while I was a, a young professor here uh, at Southwestern. What is it that holds these books together? The 27 books of the New Testament, the books of the Old Testament, what, what, what holds them together? Uh, what, 
what is the common theme? Or are there, are there, is there, is there a narrative? Is there a meta-narrative? Is there a theology that, that causes all of these diverse pieces of literature to, to, to be put together? And in speaking to the topic of what is evangelism, I, I want to, I think, at least touch upon that question, at least, at least incidentally, and I hope you'll, hope you'll listen. I'll probably do, I, I normally would never uh, read a sermon. I, I'll, I'll do a little bit more uh, reading than I would normally, but it's because I want to be precise and I want to be careful and I, I, want to, I want to do something of a, in the process of saying what is evangelism. It's really a question of who is Jesus Christ and why did he come? Uh, I, want to, I want to talk about, um, I want to do biblical theology. I want to give you a couple of definitions, and then I want to talk about the longer story of Scripture, and then I want to talk about the eschatological urgency of evangelism. Evangelism is the work of God's people in response to Christ's command to announce to all peoples with the aid and power and presence of the Spirit the good news of what God has done in Christ to restore the world. It is an act of loving obedience that is done in the hopeful prospect of evoking in those who hear the message a sincere repentance from the idolatry and worldly wisdom that not only characterize the dark and willful ignorance of this fallen age, but also inflame the pursuit of power, pleasure, money, and fame. The goal of such repentance and faith is to replace those death-inducing behaviors with a life of spirit-enabled obedience to God. Evangelism is thus the joyous proclamation, it is after all good news, of what God has done. And conversion is the desired response to the new covenant established by the once crucified and now raised and enthroned with bodily immortality. That's a very important biblical theme, by the way. Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Evangelism and its intended goal of conversion are rightly distinguished, but taken together, they are a significant penultimate step in God's plan to judge and restore the world, referred to clearly in uh, Reconcile All Things to Himself in the Colossians 1 uh, text. God has already begun through Christ to defeat the dark powers and gather the nations in submission to himself as the one true God. And to complete this inaugurated restoration, Christ has commissioned his followers to announce his kingship to all the nations and teach them to live in obedience to him. This inaugurated restoration will be completed when God renews all creation at the return of Christ the Lord. But even though the day or the hour of that world-transforming event, the return of Christ, is known only to the Father, his followers have significant responsibilities now, consisting in no small part in the proclamation of the gospel. That is, the transforming message of Jesus. The return of Christ is connected in numerous New Testament passages, I'll come back to this later, to the proclamation of the gospel. The work of evangelism has often been overly reduced to an appeal for the individual acknowledgement of sin followed by repentance and belief in Jesus. Those acts of personal response are necessary and significant moments in the process of conversion, but the work of evangelism and the response to it cannot be limited and reduced to those elements as important as they are. The mission charge of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19 to 20 is grounded in his newly established authority over heaven and earth 
as accomplished through his death and resurrection and reflected in his forthcoming enthronement at the right hand of the Father. The Great Commission thus assumes the proclamation of the gospel as the basis for making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it seamlessly connects those elements of conversion with the following command to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. The gospel itself takes on, points to a gospel-shaped discipleship. The word gospel and thus the activity of evangelism is rightly focused on the death, burial, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. But as powerful and as necessary as those focal points are, Paul reminds us, as in different ways all the earliest Christian preaching did, that those significant events with respect to Jesus were also according to Scripture. That is, those events fulfilled a longer story. Evangelism, therefore, in telling the story of Jesus, is announcing a message that is part, the most dramatic and climactic part thus far, pending the return of our Lord, to be sure, the most dramatic part thus far of the comprehensive story of Scripture, and it invites us to join by union with Christ, God's overarching story and work in the world. The story that evangelism either tells or assumes begins with God's good creation, the commissioning of the man and the woman to do his work in the world as priest kings, and their subsequent rebellion, which left them and God's creation under a curse of corruption and mortality. The narrative of Scripture in Genesis then progresses from bad to worse and includes murder, Cain and Abel, a great flood, and eventually the scattering of the nations because of their presumptive attempt to break through from the ground up into the heavenly spheres. The peoples of the earth were then dispersed and placed under the control of various heavenly gods, Deuteronomy 32, 8, translating uh, according to the number of the sons of God. But as other portions of Scripture show, those gods failed in their task of ruling the nations, Psalm 82. Thus the nations were given over to false gods, but the Lord chose Israel for himself to be his instrument of reconciliation in the world. Deuteronomy 32, 4, etc. God's choice of Israel as his people and his national agent of restoration begins after the scattering of the nations in Genesis 10 and 11, begins with the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, 13, 15, other places. Through Abraham and his seed, God promised to establish a nation that would bless and be his agent to regather all the nations of the earth. The story of that seed of Abraham begins with Abraham's son Isaac, continues with Jacob and the nation of Israel itself, and ultimately culminates in Christ, Galatians 3, 15 to 29. Most of the Old Testament narrative and prophetic preaching relates to the role of the nation of Israel as God's chosen people, covenant bearers, and trustees of his word. The Lord confirmed the Abrahamic covenants at Mount Sinai after rescuing the children of Israel from Egyptian slavery, thus constituting them when he rescued them as his nation and people. There at Sinai, he provided for them through the giving of the law certain covenantal standards that allowed them to stay in fellowship with him. It was understood, this is actually an important point, I think, for appreciating uh, Jesus and the law, Paul and the law, etc. It was understood that they would sin, but the sacrificial system and the other laws of God given to them were his gracious way of providing for their forgiveness and thus the maintenance of his covenant relationship with them. But there were no sacrifices. You'll never find it. 
there were no sacrifices or atoning provisions in the sacrificial system for idolatry. When the covenant was established on Mount Sinai, it was sealed with blessings and curses. If Israel remained faithful to the Lord as her God, she would survive and prosper. But if Israel should go the way of the other nations and worship other gods, their gods, the false gods, she would endure the stipulated curses, be sent into exile, and thus as part of the Lord's punitive discipline, fall under the dominion of the false gods of the nations. Deuteronomy 4, many places. There was, however, even though there was no sacrifice for idolatry, there was, however, a promise of God that even with the violation of the covenant through idolatry and, and reflected in subsequent exile, that the Lord in his faithfulness would remember, the Lord would remember his promises to Abraham. If the children of Israel would repent and return to the Lord, repent of their idolatry and return to the Lord, confessing truly as the Shema mandated that the Lord alone is their God, then he would establish a new covenant with them, restore them from captivity and give them a new heart that would enable them to be obedient to his will and to the law. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 30, many places, Jeremiah 31. Even at Mount Sinai, however, even at Mount Sinai, when the covenant was established with the nation, with the presence of the Lord powerfully evident through sight and sound, the children of Israel engaged in a shocking incident of disobedience by building a golden calf, thus foreshadowing their forthcoming history of disobedience. Their subsequent failure to trust the Lord to capture the land of Canaan brought on military disaster and a punitive wandering in the wilderness that itself anticipated the days of exile that centuries later would surely come. The rest of the history of the Old Testament is the story of their disobedience and eventual succumbing to worship the gods of the land of Canaan. It's amazing, the Old Testament. When you read ancient uh, Middle Eastern uh, chronicles of nations, they are typically boasting about their great victories and their great kings. The story of Israel, amazingly enough, is the story of their disobedience and their failures. The story of their, and eventually they succumb to worship the gods of the land of Canaan, thus forsaking the Lord as their God. After repeated warnings by military defeats at the hands of their neighbors, Israel was finally sent into exile, multiple warnings by the prophets, and handed over to the false gods of the nations. In 722, Assyria scattered the northern kingdom. 587, Babylon overcame Judah, the southern kingdom. And a year later, Babylon returns to destroy the temple, the special dwelling place of God. And Ezekiel, in exile, sees visions of the departure of the Lord, Yahweh himself, Ichavod, the, the departure of the glory and presence of the Lord from the city and from the temple. Eventually, after the 70 years of exile predicted by Jeremiah, the Lord led a small remnant of them out of exile and back to the promised land. But even that small tent peg driven into the ground of the promised land was not, was not the real restoration. As Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 9 both lament, even though some had geographically returned, some had geographically returned, they were still slaves in their own land. Indeed, on reflection, had it not been mysteriously revealed to Daniel 
that the calamitous time of desolation and distress would be multiplied into 70 periods of seven? Hadn't Leviticus said that when I send you into exile and you still don't repent, I'll multiply the plagues? Thus, the Old Testament story, for all practical purposes, ends. It is replete with promises that one day the Lord God would come, Isaiah, Malachi, and suddenly indwell his rebuilt temple. But by the close of the Old Testament narrative, while there remained a great longing for restoration, as witnessed by the Psalms and the prophets, the day of restoration had not come. Though fervently longed for, Yahweh's kingdom, when he would return and reign over all the earth, was not yet. The coming restoration, according to the prophets, would have many glorious features. The Lord himself would return to Israel in the temple. Their multiplied punishment, their time under the covenanted curses would be over and done. Finally, an anointed son of David would emerge. The temple would be restored. The proper priesthood would function. The Levitical offerings would resume. Elijah would come back. A prophet like Moses would arrive. And the last great jubilee would be announced. The land would be fertile and abundant. Families would be large and joy and flourishing would abound. Indeed, the spirit of Yahweh would touch all his peoples touch all his people so that all would function as prophets, seeing visions, dreaming dreams, prophesying in the name and power of the Lord, Joel 2. Hearts would be transformed to obey the law, Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Hearts would be transformed to obey the law. And then, most glorious of all, the nations would, the nations under the control of the false gods, would rally to the banner of Jesse, father of David. The kings of the earth would flock to Jerusalem. Yahweh the Lord would reign over all. The dead would be raised, the earth restored, and the glory of the Lord would again fill the temple. Indeed, his glory would cover the entire earth one day like the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, Habakkuk 2. But the Old Testament story declares none of these things as fulfilled. It's the worst ending to a collection of books that you can imagine. No, no resolution. The day of restoration remained a fervent but unrealized hope. By the time of the birth of Jesus, the expectation of a coming restoration had continued and shown itself in various acts of messianic and militaristic zeal, would-be messiahs had appeared at the, as the heads of revolutionary movements, fanning the flames of hope for Israel only to be quashed by Roman power and others prior to the Romans. But still the fervor remained, and it is therefore not hard to imagine the excitement that accompanied the appearance of the rugged, locust-eating strangely garbed prophet in the wilderness, John the baptizer. He preached, remember what had to be done because there was no sacrifice for idolatry but what the people would have to do to come back from exile? Repent. John preached a baptism of repentance and called for the confession of sins. The fruit of repentance, just as the prophets had said, would have to take place if Israel was to be restored so John summoned all who were, would hear, and there were many, to a ritual immersion in water as a sign of genuine repentance, preparing for the coming day of the Lord. 
when Yahweh would reign, his kingdom would be revealed. John, with a prophetic insight at one point in his ministry, even indicated who the coming Messiah was, pointing to Jesus, his kinsman, who likewise preached repentance and the near advent of the reign of God. The ministry of Jesus with his power to defeat the demons of the false gods and his miraculous wonders, including feeding thousands in the wilderness, healing lepers, the lame and the blind, even raising the dead, stirred the restoration fervor anew, and on occasion, hundreds, if not thousands, followed him, believing that the Messiah had finally come. But then the dark undercurrent of opposition that had hounded him all his ministry, consisting of conspiratorial rejection by some Jewish theologians, scribes, and political elites, resulted in a shocking plot in collaboration with the Roman authorities to put him to death. And instead of being stoned, Jewish form of execution, he suffered the worst Roman means of execution, crucifixion beaten and then crucified as a seditious character, according to the Romans, and according to the Jews, as, quote, one who leads the people astray. Jesus died, and the popular messianic movement he led appeared to be over. But on the third day after his execution, he rose from the realm of the dead and was seen alive again. First of all, by certain women at his tomb, and then by others of his closest disciples, on one occasion, more than 500 people saw him at the same time. As Jesus repeatedly revealed himself to, to be alive over a period of 40 days, various details of his appearance showed him to possess a new kind of body that could never perish again. At the conclusion of that 40-day period of repeated appearances, he commissioned his disciples to announce to all the nations the news of his life, death, Resurrection and resurrection in fulfillment of Scripture, Moses, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Thus setting in motion the proclamation of the good news of the now inaugurated through Jesus restoration of all things. Inaugurated. Prior to his separation from his disciples, he confessed to having all authority in heaven and on earth. He then departed from the disciples in a dramatic ascension that not only removed him from them physically, but also exalted him far above all rule, authority, and power. Every name for spiritual entities that is ever named, Ephesians 1, 20 and following. Lifted up on high, he was enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, where he will rule until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When the last enemy to be defeated is death, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. At his ascension and exaltation, there was the promise of his return at which time the whole world will see him, the dead will be raised, and God's long-awaited judgment, his sorting out when he sets all things right in heaven and on earth, the great restoration itself will be completed. The church is the spirit-empowered assembly of those who believe the good news of Jesus crucified and risen and offer God their worship through him. And because he is already enthroned as king over all the earth, his followers strive loyally to do his work. Evangelism is the church's task of announcing God's triumphant reign through Jesus. 
and thus not only expanding, remember the commission given to Adam and Eve as well, not only expanding the frontiers of God's sovereignty, but increasing the worldwide giving of thanks that God is rightly due, 2 Corinthians 4.15. The church, by announcing the message of God's reign through Christ, aims to persuade everyone, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, men and women, to turn from the corrupt idols of our worldly states and structures to serve the living and true God and to await His Son from heaven. Doing God's work as the form of waiting. Doing God's work in the world resolutely and steadfastly, knowing, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that our work in the Lord is not in vain. For as the Word of God is preached, the new creation Spirit of God attends the preaching of the gospel. And thus, accompanied by faith and submission to Jesus as King, the restoration, as we preach the gospel and people hear, as the witness is born, the restoration is furthered. Evangelism as a witness to the gospel overlaps with the teaching ministry of the church as the teaching ministry of the church morphs into gospel-shaped discipleship, a cross-resurrection pattern of living that repeatedly and simultaneously sheds the old self, crucifixion and puts on the new self, who by the Spirit is being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, 2 Corinthians. As the happy message that furthers God's work of restoration, preaching the gospel thus points to God's expansive, cosmos-wide purposes. Ephesians 1.8. Those larger purposes begin with the mandate to preach the good news of Jesus, the initiated fulfillment of God's overall narrative, and are carried forward, those purposes are carried forward by the Spirit, by transformed and gifted human agency, and by the faithful endurance and suffering of the church. The ultimate goal of the divine plan is the reconciliation of the earth's peoples to one another and to God, and the lifting of the curse of corruption and mortality from the entire creation. Thus, by, redeeming and thus by the redeeming and purifying work of Christ, God has created for himself a people whose zeal for good works produces present-day signs of the new creation and restoration. These cosmic goals are consummated at the return of Christ, which itself, though we're not told much about it, leads to the further administration of God's purposes beyond Christ's return. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Revelation 7, 13. It is here that we must make one final but very important observation. That is, that there is an eschatological urgency to preaching the gospel of the kingdom, to evangelizing in the name of Jesus, the now enthroned king. Put another way, there is a frequently attested connection in New Testament teaching between the preaching of the gospel and the return of Jesus to reveal God's triumph over the powers of darkness and his triumph over the corrupt kings of the earth, and to usher in the new creation via the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. For example, Jesus prophesied in his Olivet Discourse the necessity of preaching the gospel to all the world, Matthew 24, 14, as a, as a precondition 
of the coming end of this age. This gospel must first be preached in all the world for a witness. Then comes the end. Indeed, in the Great Commission, his promised presence with his disciples for the preaching of the gospel and handing on everything he taught them is bounded by the end. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of this age. This prophecy of Jesus that ties together the divinely ordained connection between the gospel proclamation and the end of the age is also found in numerous other New Testament traditions. The earliest Christian preaching recorded in Acts reflects Peter's urgent contention. This is in the second sermon in Acts 3. Peter's urgent contention that his followers should repent and return, quote, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the apocatastasis, the time of the restoration of all things. Acts 3.19. A similar note is struck in Acts 17 when Paul on Mars Hill exhorts his pagan audience to repent, quote, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Comparable allusions are scattered throughout the New Testament traditions, including 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, where Paul asserts that the energy for his persuasive preaching is owing to the fact that all of us must one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. Similarly, nearly every reading of Romans 11, 25 and following must reckon with the mysterious but provisional hardness of Paul's kinsman according to the flesh with respect to the gospel message, quote, until the fullness of the Gentiles by the preaching of the gospel has come in and then, could be translated thus, all Israel will be saved. This connection between the spirit-empowered eschatological task of preaching the gospel of the kingdom and the coming of Jesus to end this period of the divine economy is attested throughout the New Testament tradition. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-10 starkly reinforces the relationship between evangelism and the end of the age, pointing to the irreversible outcome, not a good one, for those who persecute the followers of Christ and do not themselves obey the gospel. This early Christian tradition makes it clear that while the people of God may suffer now in this present age, this present age of persecution will come to a divinely ordered compensatory end when, echoing Isaiah 66, quote, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. This revelation of Christ will end People often discuss the question of post-mortem opportunity or post-parousia opportunity for salvation. I, can, I can't find that in the New Testament. This revelation of Christ will end the day of gospel preaching and its correlate, the day of suffering for the sake of the gospel, by ushering in a day of recompense for the followers of Christ those who obey the gospel and have believed the apostolic testimony regarding Jesus. These links between the age of gospel witness, including suffering, 
in the return of Christ either assume or make abundantly clear that once the day of preaching is done, is done the opportunity for repentance is over. 2 Peter 3, 8-13 points to the forbearance of God for purposes of repentance and suggests that the delay in the coming of the Lord is merciful. It's reflective of God's desire that all come to repentance, but that day of patience will finally end. And as a correlate, the day of gospel preaching and repentance will end. It will do so unexpectedly as we read in various New Testament traditions like a thief in the night. In the present age and the current shakable creation will be burned up and a new heaven and a new earth revealed. I, don't, I won't take the time to point to some similar connections in Hebrews 9. It is difficult to state the matter more clearly than C.S. Lewis does at the end of book two of Mere Christianity broadcast talks when he says that now is the hour of deciding, but it will not always be so. That those who think that the coming of Christ will open up a new opportunity for repentance don't appreciate what God's coming through Christ will mean. Quote, Lewis says, But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when He does. When that happens, it is the end of this world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream in something else? Something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, when God comes again, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose, choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing it will be the time when we discover which side we really have already chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, Lewis says, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Until then, based on the commission of Jesus, we as his people are called to be his agents, his messengers to tell the world that the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ and the hour of repentance and faith is now. O oh Lord, stir our hearts to tell the truth of what you've shown us through Scripture, of the great day of restoration having begun through Christ to be consummated as, at His return. Empower us by your Spirit with gifts and endurance in the face of opposition to share the good news to the world. 
of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus in the coming glorious resurrection from the dead in the recreation of heaven and earth. Oh Lord, we love you. We bless you. We lay our hearts and minds and lives before you. Enable us, we pray, to be your faithful servants. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.